back in our series, we'd have the children go ahead and be dismissed downstairs for Sunday school. They're already on their way because they know not to wait for me, right? Amen. Well, it's good to have you. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 6 this morning. We had a guest speaker, Eric Johnson, last week, and uh, so we're getting back into our series in Ecclesiastes, and chapter 6 is what we'll be covering. We're just going to do the first seven verses this morning. Um, as I was preparing my my sermon, um, it occurred to me that we had a business meeting, <laughs> so I had to kind of cut my sermon a little short this morning, so we had time for the uh, business meeting, but I think it's uh, I think what we're covering today, as we get into the application of what the text has for us, I think it's um, it's very important. Um, it's something that I've just recently um, have been working on in my own life and in my own heart. And uh, many of you know, three weeks ago, uh, my family had the opportunity to go up to uh, Glacier National Park, and so the kids and I went up there. We took two separate cars. And there's a couple that has a cabin up there who lends it out, their cabin out to people in the ministry and small ministries who um, otherwise couldn't afford such a place. And uh, they just let, let us, let people in the ministry stay for free. So we were very blessed by them and had the, took that opportunity to stay at that cabin. And the girls stayed for the weekend and then they went home. And then I had like three or four days by myself. And uh, it was the first time that has happened. <laughs> And I don't know how long, where it was just me and the Lord. And uh, it was so encouraging. Um, it was just a time to, to breathe in and just to rest. And that's what this morning's sermon is about, finding rest in a world of chaos. How important that is for us to, to take time out, to pursue the rest that God has given us. And I think we can, as we look into what is when you first read the passage, it can be a very difficult passage in Ecclesiastes. I, I think the application for us can be immense even and, and real for us even in 2021 and all the more real, really. So let's go ahead and read the first seven verses and then we'll ask the Lord to meet with us yet again. Let's read Ecclesiastes 6, chapter 1. Here is a tragedy I observed under the sun and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. And no matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper barrier, Burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. And though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and just ask for your guiding and direction, Lord, your illumination of the, of the, the God, the Spirit who dwells inside your, your, your children. 
God, it uh, can, on the surface, and uh, well, honestly, it's just a difficult passage. And uh, God, I just pray that you would allow us to speak truth uh, this morning. And that uh, more, uh, most importantly, Father, that um, Jesus Christ would have preeminence in all things, that he would be lifted up and made known, not only in words, Lord, but in our hearts. And we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, so we have uh, pretty harsh words, a difficult passage, but just so we can come back, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in... um, We've been in Ecclesiastes, so uh, I just want to go back to Ecclesiastes 5 and and just kind of review where Solomon has been taking us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he kind of gives us um, the evidence as to why we should not trust in riches, why we should not live for specifically wealth in this world, and and, and the the consequences of doing so. And so two weeks ago, we we not only we took it in as far as application is concerned is uh, it's not only wealth that we can we can live for but many other things that we can live for in this life that this world has that we call that the bible calls heart idols that steal the glory that is only meant for god that as we seek to live as Solomon is portraying in the book of ecclesiastes life under the sun laboring under the sun without any understanding of who God is and what his purposes in this his creation are right it can lead to a life of futility of trying to essentially wrestle the wind and in Ecclesiastes 5 he's giving us the warning and he kind of sandwiches the these warnings with um, and there's three different contrasts he has here there's a negative and then there's a positive as far as wealth and then there's a another negative that we're going to cover in Ecclesiastes 6 uh, this morning. So the, what we left on the first negative contrast he had in Ecclesiastes 5, 13 and 14 says this, there's a sickening tragedy. So here's the negative. He's observing under the sun and he sees this tragedy that is happening. Wealth kept by its owner is to his harm. A person who seeks to live his life or her life for wealth and gain is ultimately living it to his harm, his harm, according to to Solomon, and he goes on in verse fourteen. That wealth was not was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. And so we talked about two weeks ago how uh, it's not good to put your all your efforts and live life specifically for money and for wealth because wealth is so fleeting and fickle; it can just be gone in an instant. And we talked about anyone that has. Money in the stock market or a 401k can work their entire lives and have this nest egg that they're counting on. And in, a, in 24 hours, 40% of it's gone because the world had a bad day. It can just be gone in an instant. And here's this person who had a bad business venture and was hoping to give his wealth to his son. And he's he left empty-handed and that's his warning for us. And then he goes on to give us uh, the positive about riches and wealth. In Ecclesiastes 5.18, here's what I've seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life. And we see the difference between the person that we've just read in the previous passages versus this person who now has God in their life, right? God is being considered here and God's purposes. And he says it's good to enjoy what God has given you. Eat, drink, and experience good in the labor. The, the, 
efforts. Enjoy the efforts, the fruit of your labor. And, and we talked about it last week. To become a Christian isn't necessarily a vow to be poor. What matters is what and who, I should say, not what, but who is reigning on your heart. I forgot my mic, so I'm chained to the pulpit. It's the worst for me. Um, it's about who is reigning on your heart. This idea of fearing God. Fearing God is a person who's walking in under and in submission to God and understanding that it is God who, who um, has created and it is God whose purposes are being carried out. And in, those, in that understanding of fearing God and walking in humility is the true meaning and purpose of life found. Living for the glory of God. And so we can, you can be a Christian and, and have wealth. The, the, the question that Solomon is pointing to is, who is reigning in your heart? Is it you and your pursuit of riches, or is it God who will use you to use those riches for his glory? And he says, look, it's appropriate. I've seen that it's, that it's good to eat, drink, and experience good and all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. Here's a tragedy I observed <clears throat> under the sun and it weighs heavily on humanity. So this is the, the, second, uh, or the, the second point of the contrast with the, the good and, and he says, look, we can, we can enjoy those things. And, and so what Solomon is really doing here is he's using this letter to, to exemplify the struggle that he's having, right? He, he sees wealth and the riches that God has allowed people to have to end up harming them. And it's those who have wealth and have influence are the ones that are doing the oppression of the poor. And the depravity that we see being carried out in, in this world is usually by those who have the wealth and the influence. But then he sees that it can be a good thing. If we understand that it is God who has given those things and we can enjoy those and allow God's glory to be carried out through the, the gifts that he's given us because it all is owned by God, essentially. And so he's using his, this letter to, to convey the struggle that he's having. He's seeing that God has given good gifts, but yet they're being used for evil. And he's struggling with that. And I think we can all be honest and say we struggle with that too. We know that God is good. He, we know that he's all-powerful. We know he's the giver of all that is good, but yet we look in this creation and we see brokenness and sin and darkness and Everywhere we might see, and we, let's be honest, we struggle with that. Why, God? Why do these things occur? And Solomon's looking, he's perceiving, he has the wisdom given by God, and he's saying, I'm struggling with what I'm seeing versus what I know God and who God is and who, what I know God to be and who he is. And so he's using this letter to convey the struggle. So this contrast is him struggling through what he's observing and trying to reconcile that with who God is. And in verse Ecclesiastes 6, 1 and 2, this is the last part of the contrast. So he's kind of sandwiched the positive of riches between two negatives here. This is the, the negative, another negative aspect of putting your, your trust in wealth and riches. Here is the tragedy observed under the sun. And again, I just want to remind you that it doesn't have to be wealth. It can be anything that you're allowing to, that you're living for that's not God. 
It is God who should reign on our hearts. We should walk in fear and humility of God. And there can be many heart idols that we seek and place and uh, seek and put on the, 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 the throne of our heart instead of God. So I just want to drive that point home. Because it's easily maybe to just well, I don't have to worry about this because I don't have a lot of wealth. Well, what is it that you're living for? If that is your heart, if it's not God, if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the heart idol that you must ask God to help topple. And he says, here is a tragedy I observed under the sun and weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. And I highlighted that he lacks nothing of all that he desires for himself because, again, Solomon's conveying the struggle that he's having and God's given this person these good gifts, but yet, um, and he's, this person lacks nothing of all he desires. It's a person who, again, is living for what his desires are and not for God. And he goes on to say, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. It's futile. It's like wrestling the wind. This is vain. This is the things that Solomon is struggling with, that even the ones that have the, 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 the wealth and, are, and understand that it's given by God, they still can't enjoy them. Because we live in this fallen world, I think this is pointing to the understanding that what God had intended for us in the Garden of Eden is we now live under the curse. We now live under the fall. And so we have this battle that's going on, good and evil, and we understand God is doing his good will as he's carrying out his will in his creation. But it does not neglect the fact that there is travesty and sin and brokenness that we struggle with every day. Even as Christians, we struggle to understand what God is doing. Why does God allow a person to have these things and yet they still can't enjoy them? Some other person's going to end up with that wealth. That person can't take those riches to their grave. This is futile and a sickening tragedy, he says. And again, just circling back to what Solomon's already concluded for us, what his ultimate conclusion, he's always, this is the spoiler alert, right? He, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he gives us the, the conclusion of the matter. And he's already given to us in Ecclesiastes 5.7. For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. And here's the conclusion. Therefore, fear God. Align your life with God and his purposes. And in that, we find meaning and purpose even in spite of the brokenness and the tragedy that we encounter in this life. He goes on to demonstrate to us what happens to a person that does not fear God who's living for their own desires in verses 3 and 4 of Ecclesiastes 6. The first aspect is they're never satisfied. Riches or anything that, that this world has to offer will never satisfy you. If it's not wealth, uh, you ask, I did a prison ministry in the, in, in when I was going to Bible college, and a lot of those guys were thrown into jail because they were doing um, crimes to support their drug habit. And you ask them, 
what they're trying to do is chase the first high. The first high that they have was the best one. And then they spend and burn all the relationships and everything that they have. Their, their, their whole life becomes pursuing that first high because they're never satisfied with it. Again and again, they must feed that. And the same thing can happen with wealth. The same thing can happen. You put, put your idol there. And Solomon's saying, the person who seeks their desires in the world are never satisfied. A man may father a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives. If he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Again, Solomon's pointing to the fact he's being honest. He's being transparent. He's like, it's better for a stillborn child. I know those, that's kind of sharp and harsh. But he's conveying his struggle. He's frustrated with this. Because this person labors under the sun day after day and he's never satisfied. And he comes down to it. He's not even uh, um, over um, in charge of what's going to happen at his burial. And Solomon says it's better that a stillborn child is better off than he. Why? For he comes, the stillborn child comes in futility, and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. This harsh kind of uh, language that shows Solomon's frustration pouring out. So lack of the never satisfied is the, the, another warning Solomon has given. And then this next one in Ecclesiastes 6.5, the negative aspect of pursuing the desires of the world or wealth is that person has a lack of rest, a lack of rest. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And that's his point for bringing up the stillborn child. The stillborn child doesn't have to labor under the sun. He doesn't have to put up with the strife. He doesn't have to wrestle with, with the, the brokenness and laboring and toil and frustrations that come in life and, and you know, brokenheartedness. Life can be tough. And he's saying at least the stillborn child doesn't have to endure those things. Lack of rest. And Solomon brings up this idea of rest and lack of rest often in the book of Ecclesiastes. Anyone who's suffered from insomnia knows what it's like to, to be laying in bed, tired, more tired than you've ever been, in, but you still can't sleep, right? The lack of rest. And he's saying the person who's pursuing wealth in this case is so worried about wealth and protecting his wealth or her wealth and, and gaining more wealth. It leads to this life of just constant unrestful, an unrestful spirit. He mentioned in 512, if you look back there, the sleep of the worker is sweet. The person who goes out labors under the sun and diligently just works for their means, uh, they have good sleep, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep, Ecclesiastes 5.12, because they're so worried about the wealth and keeping it or increasing it. They have no rest in their lives. And Solomon wrote the majority of the Proverbs, right? He speaks of this, how we can find true rest, a rest that is otherworldly or outside this world. 
Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord. If we want to pursue rest, true rest that God has given us, it must be with this understanding of walking, with the understanding of who God is, walking in humility, and fearing God in our life to bring glory to him in our walk. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Do you want meaning and purpose? Fear God. Walk in his ways. Seek to glorify him in your life. In his conclusion, one will sleep at night without danger. And we talked about uh, I, uh, one of the, the points that I brought a couple weeks ago was the love of Jesus brings us true rest because that's what Jesus is. And so now we're coming to the point of the sermon where I'm trying to bring application under the New Testament context. Hopefully I've conveyed what Solomon intended to convey in those passages, but now we're trying uh, here in 2021 to, to bring application to our lives. And we stand with the, as the benefactors of God's fully revealed revelation. And so we have a greater understanding of how we can pursue rest in the New Testament context. And that rest is found in Jesus. True rest is found in the love of Jesus that is extended to you. And coming to a saving relationship with him, Matthew eleven twenty eight says this, Come to me, this is Jesus, all of you who are weary and burdened. When I asked everyone this morning how they were doing, no one said they were weary and burdened. But I bet you there was a few of you that had a tough chin and are probably weary and burdened right now. And Jesus has come. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's about finding this rest that Jesus has. Is about making the right choices. Not only that moment of salvation, that salvific encounter that you have in Jesus where you turn from all trusting in religion or any other self-righteousness and trying to earn your favor with God as you hear the gospel message that Jesus had to come for you, had to live the law perfectly for you because we could not. And then he went to the cross to pay the penalty of your sin for you. He took that penalty upon himself so that you could have eternal life, that you could be adopted into God's family. That's some good news, that bad news of the fall and the stuff that the consequences of the fall that we see throughout can can be answered with the good news that Jesus has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Do you remember when you first heard that and you trusted and believed in Jesus' accomplished work alone, have you had that saving encounter with Jesus where the spirits convicted you of your need that you could not earn your way to him and that's why Jesus had to come and you abandon hope and all else and through the power of the spirit, the spirit of God regenerates us and makes us new in Christ as we believe and receive the The wonderful news that Jesus has come to save you from what you truly deserve, the consequences of your sin. That's the choice. That's the the day of 
your beginning walk with Jesus as one of his disciples. And what I'm saying here this morning is it, it doesn't end there. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. It's a daily choice to pursue Jesus and the rest that is found in him. Because we have a whole world in our old heart pulling us back and trying to reestablish the idols of our heart as we get so busy in this life. And so we must all seek to make the right choice. First and foremost, what you choose to do with Jesus. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, God will save you. Jesus paid the way. He is the way. And then every day from that point is a choice we all must make. And this is a, it's captured very well here in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Many of us know this narrative, this historical account that's been recorded for us. I'm trying really hard not to say story because that implies that it's just a story, a fable. This is an historical account recorded for us. As we turn to glean into God's inspired word for us and try to figure out what it means to rest in Jesus, we have been given this depiction of Martha and Mary and Jesus coming into town and coming to Martha's house. And we see two different visceral reactions between Martha and Mary. Let's read it. While they were traveling, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. And it will not be taken away from her. I think all of us can admit that we have a tinge of Martha in us, right? Things start getting overwhelmingly harsh and hard in our life. And what I do is I try to work harder. Work a little longer. Be busy. If I just put a little more time in this area or time in this area, we get so overwhelmed with the busyness of this life. And we involuntarily become into this person that Solomon is warning about us where our life is just about vain things. And we're living in pursuit of things that are all for naught. Mary made the right choice by sitting at the feet of the Savior instead of working. This idea of rest and this idea of rest is found from the foundation of God's creation in Genesis. Right? God, Genesis 1, God takes six days and he creates all that we see today. He spoke it into existence. But then on the seventh day he rested in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So the heavens and the earth And everything in them were completed. And on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
And we know as we see God's revealed revelation that God did not need to rest because God is all-powerful, but he is modeling something for us, for the, his creation, that we as his, his, uh, the chief capstone of his creation made in his image are to model and, and emulate in our lives, and that is, yes, working, laboring, toiling, under the fear of God and walking in humility, but also taking the time to rest in him. He, the uh, scriptures declare that the Sabbath was not made for men, but it was, or was not made for God, but was made for men. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy for on it. He rested from all his work of creation. And in Exodus, he, one of the part of the 10 commandments, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. Pretty much is an exhaustive list, right? Why did God do that? To put another burden under us? No, because he understands He's, he, we're his creation, and we need to rest. We need to rest. It goes on, for the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. And so this is part of the Ten Commandments. This is part of God's standard for, for his people. And this is yet another uh, demonstration for us to, that we have failed the law. We cannot satisfy God's holiness by trying to submit ourselves under the law. That's just another condemnation for us that we have not taken the Sabbath day and made it, a, you know, and not done. And we, we get to the time of Jesus and we see the religious leaders of the day making all these extra rules around the Sabbath day. You can only walk so many steps before it becomes work and and all these things they made rules to protect themselves to of the to not enter into this rule and so it becomes this religion and uh, this attempt for man to to again qualify himself in the eyes of god and and as we've gone through galatians and the new testament declares again and again the new, the old testament the ten commandments the the rules the, the commands of god that are found in the old testament demonstrate to us how we fall drastically short and this as well, and we, we have the good news and understanding that Jesus submitted himself to the law, came in, right, the form of a servant. He came from heaven, God in flesh, submitted himself to the law, lived it perfectly for us, for our account. And just as the Sabbath was a type, Jesus fulfilled that as well. It is now Jesus where we can find our rest in. But as I go on to declare that that's why we don't have to rest on Saturday, by the way, right? That's the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, the last day of the week, because we find that Jesus fulfilled that for us. The understanding of what the Sabbath is still remains important for us. We have to take time for Sabbath to find rest for our souls. Just because Jesus fulfilled it doesn't make it a bad thing. And we're causing harm to ourselves in our spiritual journey when we don't take what God has declared and revealed about this rest, this importance of rest in the Sabbath, seriously. Instead, we get busy and do more. 
So yes, and I think the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. And so it's more in the New Testament context, at least from my understanding, the Sabbath is a spiritual rest that we find in Jesus and coming to him and resting in him and his accomplished work. But we have this Martha spirit in us, right, that wants to work and do more and be busy. And so it's a struggle going on in our lives. I don't know if Martha's spirit's there, right, but you understand that part of Martha that we all just want to put on our, pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and do more. Right of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4, and this deserves much more. Um, I, could, I could spend a month or two months in Hebrews 4. This is kind of a 30,000-foot view of the, the Sabbath that Jesus provides for us. For if Joshua, right in the Old Testament, had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So he's referring back to the children of Israel. Uh, they were released out of Egypt, and we find this story in, in Exodus. God delivers them out of Egypt, and they're going to the promised land that he promised, but God's people were... Um, uh, complaining and bitter towards God and kind of looking back towards Egypt and everything that they had left behind. And so God gets upset at them and says, look, you're not going to enter the rest, the promised land that I've promised to give you because of your disobedient heart, your hard-heartedness towards me. And so for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And ultimately, after that generation had passed away, led by Joshua, uh, they were able to enter the promised land. And so the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament context is pulling us back to that story and trying to get us to understand the rest that we find in Jesus now. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. If it was just about the seventh day, God wouldn't have prophesied about another day. And so therefore a Sabbath rest remains for God's people in the New Testament context. And again, this Sabbath is not found in a day, but in a person, as we see in verse 10. For the person who has entered his rest, that's the rest of Jesus, right? Has rested from his own works. Man, to be reminded yet again, that we can rest from trying to earn our merit, earn our favor with God in our own works, and instead rest in Jesus alone and what he's done. For the person who has entered the rest, his rest, has rested from his own works just as God did from his. If you're in Jesus this morning, you can rest in him. You can rest in his accomplished work. There's nothing that you can do if you're truly a child of God this morning that's ever going to make you not unloving or make you unloving in the eyes of God. It's just amazing gift that he's given us just as God did from his week and rest in Christ alone. He goes on, verse 11, let us then make every effort to enter that rest. So here we have the writer of Hebrews telling us that we have to make an effort. But what's the effort to do? To enter to the rest of Jesus. Why? Because we all have a little bit of Martha in us. Who wants to be busy. Who wants to do. We have an old heart that wants to put the, and resurrect the old idols of our hearts. That live for those things. Instead of living under the fear and humility of God. And so it takes effort on our part. To make that choice daily. 
to make the right choice to sit at the feet of Jesus instead of always doing and being and doing more. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience, that pattern that's found in the Old Testament uh, saints that were, because of their hardness of heart, were not able to go into the rest that God had promised them in the promised land. So that's our rest, the rest that we find in Jesus, and it's a rest that we must labor and decide every day to labor to work into, to, to rest in him. And so how to find rest, and I've already mentioned this first, but I think it's important that we just end on this simple message that's found in these couple verses. And the simplicity, I, I need to, to note that I, I um, Warren Wearsby uh, uh, created an article, Come, to, come, in, come Into His Rest, in 1979, that I kind of took this simplistic outline of uh, Matthew 11, 28, and 30. Because for me, it needs to be simple. If it's going to be something I'm going to apply to my life, it needs to be simple. And this is what Jesus says. How to find rest? Come, take, and learn. Right? Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me. That means come to Jesus. Don't go. Don't buy anything. Don't do anything. Come to Jesus. Do you take time every day to spend a little time just coming into the presence of God before you rush out and begin doing? If we want this rest that is found in Jesus, we need to come to him. Come to me. Are you weary and burdened this morning? Come to Jesus. And his promise is he will give you rest. He goes on in verse 29 to take up my yoke. So we're to come to him and then we are to take up his yoke. The yoke, again, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, is a yoke that is put on oxen to, to pull a plow. And so the, the more oxen you have in the yoke, the easier it is for the oxen to pull it. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And what, what he's saying is, is you need to submit to him. Take his yoke upon you. To come to this understanding that the, the, this life that he's given you and the blessings that he's given you, whether that's wealth or, or talents or anything like that, are, are, should be used for his glory. And, and to walk in the fear of God and in humility is to submit to Jesus, to allow him to be your Lord. And not just your Savior, but your Lord. Come to me. Submit to Jesus. A heart that says, uh, my day, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I desire to live for you today and for your glory. Take up my yoke, he says, and then learn from me. Learn from me. Because this rest that Jesus promises is not found in, in something or a program, but it's found in a person. And so this rest comes from a relationship with this person. And anyone who's been in any relationships in, in, in our human relationships knows that a good relationship is a relationship where people spend time getting to know one another and doing life together and finding out more and more of that person. And knowing more and more of that person brings a deeper and more meaningful relationship to fruit 
And Jesus says, if you want the rest that I can provide, you must come to me, you must submit to me, and then you must walk with him and learn from him. And thankfully, we have God's revealed word that's given us all that we need for life and godliness, Peter says. And we can come and fellowship with one another and open up God's word and learn more about Jesus. My sole entire goal is to point people to Jesus because that is where people can find salvation and find rest. Learn from me because I am lonely and humble in heart. I was reading this uh, book this week and he, the author just kind of said, uh, Lance Witt, that's a different author. I can't remember the name of the guy. But uh, uh, he says, look, God is, uh, O.S. Hawkins, that's who it was, in a preacher's primer. He says, uh, God is showing, Jesus is showing us his heart right here. For those who are in Christ, this is his heart. He's revealing who he, he's not some mean taskmaster, master. For those who are adopted into his family or we are now his bride, he says, come to me because I am lonely, lowly, and humble in heart. He seeks to have relationship with us. And he's demonstrating to us that it's not in our own efforts. It is because of who he truly is that we can come to him. He is lowly or meek and humble in heart. And if we do these things, Jesus, out of the words of Jesus himself, you will find rest for your souls. This lack of rest that Solomon is speaking of, person pursuing meaning and purpose in the desires of this world finds restlessness. The walking in the fear of God and understanding his purposes, trying to understand his purposes and walking in humility and submitting ourselves to him, that is when we find the rest that we all desire. And that is my prayer for us this morning that we take this to heart and all of us would examine our lives and figure out where we can take this time to Sabbath to just sit at the Savior's feet to rest in him and what he's done for you. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is where we will find rest, church. And we all endeavor to examine our own lives And find the rest that Jesus promises us as we come to him, as we take and submit to him, and as we learn of him together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to bring your, open up your word, God, to be reminded of the rest that you've given us in Jesus, the assurance of knowing that our eternal um, life is not found in how good we can do or how busy we can be but resting in the accomplished work of Jesus alone. What a great gift you've given us, God. Help us to labor into that rest. Convict us of our need to pursue the Sabbath, the rest that you've given us in Jesus, not just at the time of salvation, not just once in a great while, but every day. Help us to find that rest. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.